This is It Just Takes One. One person, one experience, one idea, one moment to change your life. Here's what's coming up on today's show. So affinity I see as um, attraction and alignment. I see it as where uh, if you have an affinity for something, you're drawn to it. And I see the affinity within this you know, this context of team coming together, being drawn to each other, you know. Sometimes I ask myself this question. How did I get here? And I mean that in the most philosophical sense, as in, how did this small town girl, through the series of twists and turns in her life, end up sitting here right now recording this podcast for you? (laughs) I think it's fascinating to look back on the journey of our life and see what it took to get to being right here, right now. But I think it's equally fascinating to learn about that journey of someone else's life. And that is a bit of what we explore in the episode today. My guest today is Grant Ian Gamble. Grant grew up in Australia and through a series of twists and turns of his own, he ended up here in the United States. He is a business owner and a business success coach. And he is also a best-selling author of the new book, The Affinity Principle, People First Always. We talk about the book and what a tremendous resource it is for business owners. And we also dive into what it means to have an affinity in your life and in your business. We discuss what it means to follow your passion and to find joy in doing what you love to do. And we talk about how important it is to care about people. I think you're going to get a lot out of the interview today. There's so much to unpack and I want to get right to it. So I invite you to sit back and listen in as Grant Gamble shares his story. Hello, Grant. Welcome to It Just Takes One. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you. As a recent best-selling author of your new book, The Affinity Principle, I'm sure you're feeling pretty good. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> my wife was saying the other day, you know, we need to celebrate these uh, milestones more, but it feels like, you know, you get to each milestone and then, you know, there's a whole road ahead. So, yeah, it was exciting to get there, but uh, still a lot more to do. I, I hear you. It is the beginning of something great, uh, but as much as it's a, a finished product, it is also a beginning of something. So I, I understand that feeling. I wanted to start today, Grant, uh, before we get too much into the book, which I am excited to, to talk about and to share with the audience. I, I want to start uh, and give the audience a little bit more perspective on how you and I are connected and you know, how we actually engaged in this process of writing and publishing your book. So let me just make a shout out to our mutual friend, Tim Rohde, who was the one who introduced us. How do you know Tim? Goodness, uh, Tim and I go back a long way. Um, we were both on the fitness speaker circuit. So we were speaking at a variety of conferences in Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and, and the US. Uh, and we met actually in New Zealand, um, Liz was with him, his wife and our wife, and uh, we flew to Australia and we presented at the same conference. We bumped into each other. Then we flew to Singapore on the same flight, literally across the way from each other. And we just chatted and Tim and I had these parallel lives that were almost identical in almost every way. It was just uncanny. And we just became fast friends. So in Singapore, we both bought a uh, crystal ball because our, our goal was to communicate across the Pacific. Uh, that didn't really work. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we stayed in touch and we shared a lot of stuff. Both of us were consulting in the fitness industry at the time. And so we were sharing, you know, things we were doing or, or materials or ideas. And uh, in 97, he went into, or he'd gone into partnership with a gentleman who owned a health club in Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, 
they were looking for some help. They saw me presenting at URSA 1997 and asked if I'd come across for a couple of months to work with Tim with what he was doing up in Maryland and work with Phil with what he was doing down in Virginia. So it was sort of like a, you know, they, they both pooled their resources and brought me across. That two month contract became an 11, month, 11 year stint. So <laughs> from 97 to 2008. Um, but, you know, Tim and I have remained close friends. He's, he's truly my dearest friend. You know, he just um, is such an abundance mentality. Uh, mm-hmm. Very smart, humble and talented guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know Tim also through the fitness industry. He and I connected at the mentorship program that Todd Durkin runs. And then he eventually joined the Todd Durkin Mastermind. And I worked with him for a few years and also helped him publish um, a book. He wrote a chapter in a collaborative book that we did. And and so have stayed connected with him as well. And when he first called to say, I have somebody I'd like to introduce you to. He was full of all kinds of great compliments for you as well. um, And knew that, that you had a book and you were ready to publish and you just needed that last little push to, to get to the finish line. And so I am so grateful to him for putting us together. Absolutely. And, you know, if I could add something to that, Kelly, you know, I'd been looking at going the traditional publishing route. So, you know, started reaching out to publishers I was hesitant to self-publish um, for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> and when Tim said, look, you really should talk to Kelly and Greg. I'm like, okay, you know, I was open to it because he spoke so highly of both of you, uh, and particularly his you know, relationship that he had with you, Kelly, or, you know, had, has had over time mm-hmm. and respected you. And um, when I spoke to you guys and we talked through really more a hybrid sort of model, you know, where with your help, I was able to self-publish. It was a big turnaround and a big, um, I think, a revelation for me. And I'm so pleased that we did that. You know, that Tim, you know, introduced me to you and Greg and Scripta because I, I feel really good about the process to support everything you guys have done. So it was a great referral from a great friend. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And and yes, and one of the great things about it is that the book got out much quicker than it would have had you continued on on the path of looking for a traditional publisher and and who knows where it will go from here but it's great that it's now available and and out for the world to actually take advantage of i am excited to share some of it with the audience Uh, but let's talk a little bit more about your background so people get a little better sense of of who you are before they get to the book and, and understand where the book came from in the book, you actually tell some really beautiful stories of, of this path of your life. And you share one that I think is really interesting and that might really resonate with, with the audience. You talk about the Queen Scout Award and your pursuit of that award as a young man. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. What is this Queen Scout Award? How, how will people understand what it is? And talk a little bit about what happened in that experience, because I do think it was a seed planted way before this book, uh, but maybe became part of the reason for the book and the philosophy that you have garnered. Tell us a little bit about that award. Sure. So in the scouting organization, you know, there's a series of awards and achievements, <clears throat> pardon me, that, um, that scouts can achieve. Um, the Queen Scout Award is, is similar to the Eagle Scout Award that you would see here in the United States. Uh, at that point, it was took about four plus years, sometimes five years to achieve. It was the, the ultimate achievement in the scouting movement in the Commonwealth. Um, and I, I had a, a pretty rough household, you know, um, alcohol and, and, uh, and abuse, you know, like um, it was a pretty torrid environment. So any chance I could get out of the house was a good one and scouts sort of became my thing. And so I really threw myself head in, headlong into that. And, um, and then I decided to go for the Venturers Award, which is the first level. And then um, ultimately the Queen Scout Award. So I think, you know, on some levels, what was happening at home was a motivator, A, to get out, but also just, you know, to achieve something, I think. Um, I was very driven to, you know, 
I don't know, you, you, you seek love or seek, you know, affirmation and you do things to do that. But um, what happened in that experience of the Queen Scout Award was amazing. You know, I really, I didn't realize I had leadership potential um, and I didn't realize really what leadership was. Uh, um, I, I didn't have any mentors that were, you know, great leaders at that age. Um, and what I had to do through the course of that, you know, journey was I had to learn a lot in a lot of different areas, but I had to relate to people, I had to develop, you know, my emotional intelligence. I had to really develop my maturity because I had to deal with a lot of adults to achieve certain elements of this award. Um, and over, over a period of time, you know, I needed to, become also a leader of the group, you know, so the other scouts that were with me, I needed to, for example, lead them on a 50 kilometer hike mm -hmm. through unknown territory with just a compass and a map. And this is through the bush, the Australian bush, which is, you know, none too friendly to, you know, a lot of people sort of, well, most people know what the Australian bush is like, but, um, but those sort of experiences, you know, trying to get a disparate group of kids, you know, to march 50 kilometers with backpacks on um, and get them from A to B safely. And you're the guy that's responsible for that. That's a huge undertaking and responsibility. Um, so there was all sorts of things like that that came up. I mentioned one in the book about the environment. Mm. You know, I paddled a lot um, in the scouting, you know, in part of my Queen Scout, you know, I, I made some kayaks and, you know, I love paddling and I'd paddle in a local creek, but the local creek, was, was pretty murky, pretty sad, uh, being polluted by a local, you know, factory. Mm -hmm. And I knew how bad it was, but I had no real idea of just how, how much damage had been done. So one part of the Queen Scout Award is the Environment Award, which I chose to do. And my librarian at school, her husband worked for essentially the EPA in Australia. And um, she connected me with him and we sort of hatched this plan that what I was going to do was take samples at the factory outlet where they put, you know, their supposedly clean water into this Creek um, because he couldn't, he couldn't turn up without officially announcing that. So I could, as a part of my project, take samples and bring them back to him for testing. Mm. So we colluded a little bit and um, it actually, led to in part this factory having to change its methods clean up its act essentially and eventually the factory was closed down because um it was dealing with heavy metals and a lot of those were ended up in this creek and in the lake and, and in the fish and therefore in the population and there's a high incidence of cancer and you know horrific so you know being involved in those sort of things exposes a young man to you know the good and the bad you know in the world and you know the stuff you know, that you can do about it if you actually take a proactive role. So it, it was an amazing journey, amazing journey. Hmm. Absolutely. And when you read about it in the book, you realize that just that in itself, that experience in your life, going through what it took to get that award, helped to develop your appreciation for leadership, uh, some self-confidence and maybe some self-awareness that you didn't have before that. Your recognition of the importance of teamwork and communication Definitely. and perseverance and and also what you just said you know making a difference that you can do something that can make a difference in this case you know a difference in that community uh, helping to Absolutely. clean up that waterway and those are all seeds that you took with you as you continued and that you eventually you know fold into this philosophy that you have wouldn't you agree Oh, absolutely. You know, um, things that happen to us, you know, events in our lives, uh, paths that we choose, you know, all inform us, um, you know, you know, on our journey. So I definitely brought a lot of that with me. Um, the Navy, you know, when I was at the Royal Australian Naval College, you know, that really informed me on leadership as well. I'd, I'd like to say in most positive ways, but, you know, there was also some what we call in the fitness industry contrast correction as well. <laughs> there are some examples of what not to do, which is always valuable. So, you know, all these things inform you and definitely that sort of started my journey to leadership um, or that leadership journey for me, you know, was a Queen Scout Award that was, you know, certainly started it certainly helped me get into the Royal Australian Naval College as well. Mm -hmm. um, having achieved that, it was such a rare thing. I was the first um, young man 
in my district, in the history of the district, which was some 40, 50 years long that it achieved the Queen Scout Award. So mm. it wasn't a common thing, apparently. It mm. made a little more common these days. Yeah, um, phenomenal. And all of those roads eventually led you in a, in a direction that, as you describe in the book, uh, was not necessarily part of a plan, um, but it did launch you then into the corporate space, into business. Um, talk a little bit about what happened when you turned 23 and how you were suddenly <laughs> given an opportunity that you could never have predicted was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was was drawn after leaving the Navy. I bounced around a lot and um, probably started I didn't probably, I started drinking too much and imbibing in things I shouldn't be imbibing in. I was really off the rails a little bit. And um, I, one day I just said, okay, I'm going to go to a health club and I'm going to join. And I joined, I never looked back. So, you know, I was really trying to not end up in the same place, you know, my household had ended up. Mm -hmm. So that transformation into the fitness industry, you know, I suddenly realized, man, I love this. I love changing lives, you know, which was sort of the center of everything from that point on. And um, I was traveling up uh, through Australia, just working in clubs, you know, consulting. I'd, I'd say that in very light terms, <laughs> but I was teaching master classes. I was working in clubs as I worked around Australia and was loving it. And I came to Cairns, far north Queensland, there was a club that seemed very successful, you know, had a lot of members and whatever. And I uh, worked there for about a month and they had a big membership special. They sold um, a 12 month membership, but it's all paid in full back in those days. Everybody paid in full. And when this month ended and I was about to hit the road again, um, the owners pulled me in on the Saturday and said, Hey, we're closing the doors this weekend. We're not reopening them. I'm like, what? I mean, we'd sold almost 300 memberships that month. The club had 1,500 members, you know, like that had paid in full in most cases. And they're like, well, you can have the club if you want it. And so, you know, to be perfectly frank, I felt firstly a moral obligation. I'm like, how can I walk away? You know, I sold probably half of those memberships and I really liked the people here. I liked the team. I liked the members, you know. Um, but what I didn't realize, Kelly, was you know, that I was taking on, well, I had some sense of it, but I was taking on all the leases, I was taking on the debt, I was taking on all the members that had paid for membership, but I had to service them for the extent of their memberships. Um, and that, that was a, you know, huge, you know, huge hill to climb. I had some sense of that, but I thought, no, I can do this, I can do this. And it was truly my confidence from, you know, the Queen Scout journey, from the Navy uh, and just my sense that I was on a really good, in a good, really good place in this industry that I, it was worth me taking this risk. And so uh, what I'd say in hindsight is I really didn't know what I didn't know, you know, <laughs> but uh, I got in, you know, boots and all and turned the club around pretty quickly actually. And within three years, it was um, one of the most successful country um, clubs in the state. And I gained a reputation, you know, as this turnaround guy. And so that led me to then um, work with larger club groups and, you know, then start working nationally and internationally and the rest is history. You know, I sort of, that began my journey, but I really fell into it. And if I was, if I knew what I know today and I had the resources I had back then, I probably wouldn't do it again, <laughs> but I'm glad I did. <laughs> yeah, sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? It just, it allows you to take the risks and, and jump Definitely. in with both feet and not be afraid of Definitely. not succeeding. Um, yep. So, yeah, I, I understand that feeling. I thought, yeah. as you're talking, I was thinking, you know, in my experience in the fitness industry, my own experience included, but even the many people that I know in the industry, people do have interesting journeys toward it. Not everybody comes to the fitness industry in a direct line, you know, exercise yeah. science background and, and personal training and whatever group fitness. Um, oftentimes yeah. people sort of just fall into it. Have you found that same thing? Absolutely. You know, and I think the common element, and, and I'm generalizing here, but the common thread that I've seen in the people that are attracted to the industry is they, they um, want to change lives. They want to make a difference. Um, 
you know, sure, there's sexy elements to it, being a personal trainer or being a group exercise instructor. I mean, I was a group exercise instructor, you know, the aerobics competitor, you know, I, I sort of was a trainer, you know, I've done all those things, but my, I feel like most people that get drawn or, or, you know, attracted or, you know, just end up in the fitness industry really want to make a difference in people's lives. Mm. And, and that's a wonderful thing. And um, the, the ben the joy of, helping somebody lose some weight, get fitter, you know, maybe get off their diabetic medicine, you know, medication or, you know, all the things that, that the anecdotes that you hear and see on a daily basis, you know, it, it's really thrilling, I think. Um, and so I do feel like a lot of people fall into it sometimes for the wrong reasons, but almost without exception, I think when you get into it and you feel the joy of changing lives, you know, people go, man, this is really cool. Um, you know, my, my experience when I first got into the fitness industry, I was earning $1,000 a week in construction, you know, and I went to $200 a week in the fitness industry and I could not, could not have been happier. <laughs> I could not have been happier. Yeah, I, I, that is a fairly common. In fact, I had a woman, um, we, we published a book with Esther McIntyre a week ago and I did her podcast interview the other day and she was talking about the same thing. She had a 30-year career in corporate in the corporate world and changed all of that and, and ended up in the fitness industry for the yeah. exact reason that you're describing. And it was certainly not about the money uh, because yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that was a big shift for her, but because she really truly wanted to make a difference and, and feel a sense of purpose in what she was doing and not just, you know, going to the office every day. Absolutely. Yeah, great. So along the way, so you, you became known as the comeback guy. You began, you know, branching out into other areas of fitness and being able to travel internationally to speak and to talk. But somewhere in there, Grant, you started to see a need for mindful leadership and helping organizations, not just in the fitness industry, of course, but helping organizations to run their businesses more effectively. Tell us about that transition and how that philosophy and, and recognition came to be. It's a great question, Kelly, because as I said, you know, I, I was um, a leader by default in the, in that first club that I took on. Um, and people liked following me, you know, they had an affinity for me. Um, and, you know, I wasn't sure, uh, in, you know, at the time I wasn't aware of what was creating that or, you know, what was creating the alignment, you know, it was just, uh, intuitively, I, you know, I think I, I just had, I had some intuitive sense, I guess. Mm -hmm. I really liked people, you know, I wanted to help people. And, and I started really with a team, you know, like working with the team and trying to help them be the best they could be. And through that, you know, through that, the members got a great experience because these team members were flourishing and um, respected and appreciated and all those things. And I found that, you know, I was growing affinity sort of naturally, you know, um, not very methodically or consciously, but naturally growing affinity just by taking care of my team members. And over the course, and then when I sold that club, um, it closed down, goodness, you know, six months later, which was really sad because in that particular location, it had closed down four times. Or when I come along, that was the fourth time that it was going to close down. Mm -hmm. I ran it successfully for three years and then sold it. And six months later, it closed down. I'm like, man, what's going on here? And it really made, made me, it made, gave me cause to pause and think, okay, what was I doing right? What didn't I transfer to the new owner? You know, what could I do differently next time? Because I was really sad that the club had closed. I wasn't in a position to reopen it myself because I'd accepted a position with a large club group um, down in Brisbane. And <clears throat> so what I, what I started doing was doing a lot more introspection, a lot more personal development, a lot more, you know, research on how, how can you replicate this effect? How can you, you know, create and build teams, but also how can you, you grow what I've called affinity, you know, this affinity, within teams and, and maintain it and scale it. So and a good example, I'll jump forward. When I came to the States to work with Tim and Phil um, in 97, 
Um, Phil had, you know, one location, one 20,000 square foot club in Charlottesville and a little sort of downtown site. And Tim was building the Mac and the Mac was, you know, 60 some thousand square feet and, you know, big club. But, but um, what I was brought in was to help them, you know, build these, you know, businesses. And, and then eventually I, I went to work with Phil full time and we grew that to, you know, 12 sites along the Atlantic coast, stretching from Pennsylvania and down to Richmond. But the point of my story is that when we started to move outside of my gravitational force, you know, we weren't doing great. And again, I had to amp up another level of how I was, you know, growing team and growing affinity and making that affinity, you know, a cultural thread that carried through whether I was there or not, or whether I was involved or not. And, you know, I learned a lot in that experience and, and we ultimately threaded this culture through all of the clubs and the clubs that, you know, incredibly successful today. I'm proud that they're incredibly successful today, you know, without my being a part of them anymore. So, you know, in Praces, you know, the, the journey has been a long one. I've made a lot of missteps. I've had to do a lot of introspection. You know, I've also, the mindfulness piece that you reference had, had to improve my ability to be present. You know, sometimes I'm running 100 miles an hour, I'm, I'm out in the horizon thinking about the next thing and I've got to come back and be really present with my people or with my teams. Um, and, and that's, again, a huge lesson that I've learned in the last company I was running um, that, you know, no matter how fast we're going and how fast we're growing, you know, I need to remain present for the people that are helping us do that. Um, so the affinity principle really came out of the confluence of all those experiences from, you know, the first club I owned back at age 23, all the way through to the, you know, large company I was running most recently that, you know, creating affinity, you know, truly happens when the leader is present and mindful. And therefore I felt like, wow, you know, this is, this is something I can distill into, a message, you know, for leaders, managers, and, and more importantly, people that would like to be a leader or a manager. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's dial down on it just a little bit more so the listeners really understand what you're talking about when you're saying affinity. What do you mean if you, if you can define affinity? And then how does that play into what you call the affinity principle? So affinity, I see as um, attraction and alignment. You know, I see it as where uh, if you have an affinity for something, you're drawn to it. And I see the affinity within this, you know, this context of team coming together, being drawn to each other, you know, uh, to the collective pursuit of a, a, a bigger mission, a more intrinsic purpose, you know. Um, so the in, affinity principle is really a formula. You know, the base of the formula is a really simple one. And I've used this goodness for a lot of years now. And, and it really goes like this really simple. Um, great leadership leads to a great team performance. Great team performance leads to a great customer experience or member experience in the fitness industry, but a customer experience, which equals financial results. And the focus of that formula is really on the people, you know, leadership, team, customer. And the byproduct is the profit, is the financial piece. Mm -hmm. And when people trust that that's the case, it's amazing the results they get. And it's amazing like, the results I've gotten, the turnarounds that I've, I've you know, been a part of over the years. You know, I've kept applying that formula. Now I've seen companies that I've you know, helped promote that culture of people first always, which is the subtitle to the book. You know, I've, I've helped grow a lot of companies that, that took on that mantra. I've seen a few of them backpedal, you know, um, when leadership's changed. And, you know, one case where a CFO comes in as the new leader and it's money first, you know, like it's all about the bottom line. It's all about how can we save money? How can we cut costs, you know, and the people are a byproduct. And you see the shift in momentum in that company and, and, and the outcomes, you know, and also the biggest thing, I shouldn't say the biggest thing, but one of the biggest things should, for a company should be retention. If you've got good people hanging on to them and the retention 
rate in that particular company went from being incredible to being average, you know, and it happened pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, because people felt, you know, they, that they weren't, there wasn't an affinity there. Um, but, but in this book, you know, I break it down into a lot of different pieces. I mean, there's 23 chapters in the book. Um, there's several different formulas, but um, early in the book is, is the diagram, you know, it's the affinity principle and it brings in all the elements from, you know, flow state and, um, you know, mentorship, community, encouragement, vulnerability, all the elements and layers that I, I feel like mindful leadership needs to imbibe. And those are the pillars and levers of mindful leadership. So that sort of is a, the base or foundation of, you know, the affinity principle. Um, and just, I have you know, my, to, uh, go ahead. I have my copy of the book right here. And I told you as we got onto the call that my book uh, copy, thank you for the signed copy that I have um, is, hmm. is dog-eared and I have post-it notes all the way through it because the concepts that you share are are so useful and so practical for any kind of business so whether you're a fitness business owner certainly some of the audience will be or whether you own you know or ceo of of a corporation or own a small business like greg and i do with scriptor there are so many pieces in this book that can help you refine and and get better at the different skills that allow you to be a better leader, create a better team, you know, ultimately have a better customer experience. Um, so, so the book itself is, it's, it's just a beautiful book. <laughs> I should just say beautiful from the aesthetic viewpoint because the graphics and all of that are just amazing. But the content is, it, it reads almost like a textbook where it is that full of resource. Is that what you intended when you wrote it? That's, that's a great question. <clears throat> um, the truth is when I wrote the book, I was really trying to take a compilation of a lot of, you know, materials, notes, journals and so forth uh, and, and distill them into something that was, yes palatable so i definitely had the intention of being visually i wanted to be visually stunning you know i wanted to be something that people go wow i just want to read this because it looks good you know Mm -hmm. um but i also wanted the content to be simple practical um you know somebody said to me a good friend said you know there's there's honestly not much in there i didn't know or I, i haven't known of or haven't you know been exposed to over his long you know career but he said the distillation of all that in one resource, it, it does read like a textbook. It's almost like a textbook, but I also wanted it not to feel like a textbook, you know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted it to have lots of images and my wife, you know, call out to my wife, Yana, she's a graphic designer. She's an artist. She's a brand manager. She has her own marketing company and is incredibly talented, but she literally came along the writing journey with me and, really did i think the book looks better than than the right than the writing itself honestly <laughs> i just think it's a visual masterpiece and it's not because she's my wife i mean if i had a graphic designer do what she'd done i would want to you know pay them twice what what i you know would have offered them because it's powerful the infographics are really well done the branding's consistent and i know i'm plugging my own book here but i'm really putting a call back out to yana because truly um what you described kelly it's such an easy read mm-hmm. and it was meant to be and and she's made it that and um i've had so many people call or reach out to me that said you know i just love the book i'm not a business book person you know so this is not somebody that maybe read it you know for the value as a business owner but they read it because out of interest about leadership but that have just said i found it so easy um and one guy you'd relate to this he was a young guy came to me many, many years ago when I was running ACAC uh, and he wanted to work in our IT department, except he didn't know a thing about computers, but he had an amazing, amazing personality. I'm like, you know, you, you should think about getting on the fitness floor and becoming a trainer and so on. And he did. And he went on this journey and became the most successful trainer at this group of clubs. But um, I recently did a talk at his gym because he then went and did his own gym and, you know, he 
said I inspired him to do all that. And I'm like, no, no, you did it yourself. But my point is he doesn't read a lot of books. He, he's so headlong in his business. He's so swamped and so busy and so passionate about just training and working with people. But he loved the book and he found it very palatable and easy to read. That was a great litmus test for me because if Justin would read it, <laughs> then pretty much anybody would read it. And that's not a criticism. It's just, he's a very tactile, very, you know, energetic guy that really it's hard to get him to sit down and, and read something. So Absolutely. Yeah, I understand it, it ticked that. a lot of boxes. Ticked a lot of boxes. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, and, and also maybe just a call out because the audio book is coming, correct? So people that maybe are not yes. readers um, will be able to listen to it and might be a more palatable way for some people to gather the content as well, correct? Yeah, I have a lot of, lot of requests for the audio book and um, I've started working on that, but man, um, that's a journey in and of itself again. <laughs> yes, it is. Just another chapter, yep. pun intended. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I want to go back to something that you said as you were describing the affinity principle and the formula and, and the need for mindful leadership and, and the example that you gave of the company that rather than being driven by people was being driven by the, the bottom line of dollars. I'm curious in your experience how receptive have you found companies to, to the idea that people come first? And I'll, and I'll share why I'm asking that. I actually had an opportunity to work for a company, uh, a small family run company, a couple hundred employees, manufacturing. Um, and, the, and the family had owned it for actually since the late 1800s, this company has been in business. So it's got a, a long history. And because they have had a great pension plans through the years, um, they, they've been able to retain their employees. So, so many of their employees have been with them for 15, 20, 25, 30 years. So they have good retention, but they're, when I was working with them, they were having some communicate, there were some difficulties between the, upper management and the um, the people on the floor who were doing the work and you know there was a lot of finger pointing well it's their fault it's their fault it's their fault and when i said to them i actually i wish i had had the book i would have given them the book i will be sending it to them by the way um but, but then i i said to them remember that your greatest resource is your people and the ceo looked at me like i had two heads and he said that's not true our greatest resource is our product. And I thought, okay, how am I going to change his mindset? And truth be told, I didn't. Um, yeah. I think I made some, some inroads in some areas, but I did not get the company to where I think the CEO would have liked to see in the company. So my ex that was just one experience where somebody did not see the value of their people how often do you come across that and how, if you have come across that, is there a way to help companies flip that switch and see it from a different perspective? It's a great question. And, and it, it is common. Um, you know, I don't come across it a lot. And the reason being that um, I my one of my taglines in terms of how I present my business growth coach hat is working with mindful businesses, you know, and conscious, conscious capitalism, you know? Mm. And so I don't tend to get approached by companies that are just looking at the bottom line. What's funny though, you know, is when you look at some of the companies, you know, that I've worked with and, um, and the turnarounds that they've seen, you know, the financial turnarounds, um, you'd say, man, if anybody was really looking at this, you know, from a financial standpoint, they'd see that there's something in this, you know, there really is. I went to a, a lecture from a uh, accounting firm that uh, was based on the West coast, but I was invited by a hospital I was working with. Uh, we were partnering with that hospital with the wellness centers that I was running. And this gentleman was talking about, you know, hospitals and the dire straits that they were in and, and why they got in those dire straits. And what he actually described was a lot of what we're saying here. You know, they, they would bring in some, and I'm going to hope not offend anybody, but some bean counter, you know, mm -hmm. to cut and carve and, you know, try and get all the costs down as much as possible. And 
typically those, those hospitals would end up in financial ruin because they just gutted the culture, you know, so, and that might've been a, a new CEO that came in or a new board or whatever that was driving this, this push for, you know, financial um, or fiscal responsibility. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying here is that, that leading with affinity is not about not having fiscal responsibility. It's actually having actually long-term fiscal responsibility where you're not focused on that, you know, saving that cent today. What you're focused on is, is getting the most out of your, your most valuable resources that you described there, Kelly people, you know, and any CEO that doesn't believe that his people are the most important resource they have or any CEO, I shouldn't say he, she, you know, um, you know, is, I think, I'm going to say it delusional, you know, if they don't feel that their people are the most important asset they have, they really are off base. And um, I'm sorry to be so blunt, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's going to become more and more important as time goes by, you know, this virtual environment we're in with COVID right now, it's fascinating, you know, because we're, we're living in this sort of digital world and the, the challenges that represents for companies um, are enormous. So, so to close the point, you know, what I want to say is um, I come across it occasionally. I see it often, you know, sort of at length, at, at arm's length. And um, what this gentleman, this accountant, you know, explained was when these companies manage this way, they end up in these dire positions when they really come at it from a people first perspective, you know, from building a strong culture perspective, you know, those hospitals do much better financially. I think that's true of any business, any sector. I've worked in a lot of different sectors. And I have seen this principle or this, you know, foundation um, work in everything from the manufacturing industry, you know, all the way through to, you know, uh, healthcare or, or clinics. Um, so I hope, I hope that answered the question. Um, I know. I've... Well, it does. I think, you know, like you said, if people can see the end result and the difference it makes, then then perhaps they can at least be willing to try and and see it from a different perspective. I'm also really glad you brought up COVID in this current environment because it made me wonder, how do you apply the principle now? Because certainly there are a lot of businesses in a lot of different sectors who are saying, okay, my bottom line is suffering. What am I going to do as the economy begins to reset itself? and, And what do I do next to help grow and build my business. Where do they begin if they're following the affinity principle? That's a great question. Um, What's funny is I sat on a panel this morning for the Global Wellness Institute, and that panel discussion was around, you know, the new world order, COVID, corporate wellness, you know, um, what to do. And, um, And really, a lot of people ask exactly that question. They're like, you know, well, how do you you know, apply some of the principles you're talking about here, you know, in that remote environment. And, uh, and it's difficult, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of what I believe and espouse in the affinity principle is really being present with people. And I mean, fully present, you know, in their space, like walking down to your shipping department or, you know, spending some time in customer service on the phones or, you know, actually helping, you know, the bottling division if you know depending on what you do mm-hmm. um so you know that really takes it away and what i was explaining today was um in order to maintain affinity or even to to create affinity in this virtual world where a lot of people are working remotely they're isolated um i think you've got to connect with your people as often as possible as personally as possible so an example would be, you know, you're in an office building and you're one next door to your friend's office or to, you know, somebody you want to ask them a question so you don't pick up the phone, you're one next door. Can't do that now. Well, my thing is video call them, FaceTime them, you know, um, and I'm talking about not for meetings, not for appointments, not for scheduled stuff. Just, hey, like let's say Tim, for example, was a coworker with me, you know, just picking up you know, the FaceTime, FaceTime and say, Hey man, just checking in to see how you're going. How's it going over there and create those connections. Now that's got to come from leadership. Leadership has to encourage that leadership has to do it. Um, I also feel like there needs to be a lot of, you know, opportunity for the team to get together and maybe it's in little pods, you know, that have an interest in a particular thing or a 
particular area or, you know, join a, a group. But it's not a meeting. It's not with any, you know, fundamental outcome for the company, except that it's continuing to maintain or build team. And again, I think the visual piece is important. There's layers, and I speak about this in the book, but there's layers to that contact. And if the contact's by phone, that's great. Uh, well, let's step back a bit. If it's by text, great. If it's by email, great. If it's by phone, that's even better. You start to get a little bit of tone, right? But then when it's video as well and you have body language, oh my goodness, that just elevates it enormously. My perfect place is an analog place where you can give that person a hug or a pat on the back or you know, a hand to carry that box out to the courier's truck or whatever. That's my perfect place. But in COVID today, to you know, finalize this answer, sorry, it's long-winded, but, but in COVID today, we need to make as much contact in as many and include as many layers as we can with our team, with individuals, with, you know, our companies, our, uh, our community, you know, like extend that out to your community. So I'm saying, you know, the video call is so endemic today, use it to your advantage to stay connected and, and to lead by example, by demonstrating that you're available and you actually care about the people beyond, you know, the product. So in a world that's very disconnected, connection becomes even more important in so whatever crucial. form you can get to it, but certainly the more yeah. personal, the better. Yes. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think you just mentioned another point that is important um, that you incorporate throughout your book, but also in just the, the philosophy in general is that essence of caring, you know, to really yeah. care about your people that they aren't just numbers and they aren't just producers. They are people with lives and emotions and, and all of that. Uh, speak a little bit more about that piece. How do you show that caring element to your people? Yeah, it's again, a great question. And, and the gentleman that um, was one of the sort of panel leaders um, who, uh, he said, look, you should talk to that grant, you know, not just about the mechanics of this, you know, about the actual, you know, emotional, you know, connection. Um, and, you know, I think there is one when a leader really cares about their people, that's, that's evident. Uh, I'll give you an example in, you know, again, the last company I was running, um, I knew everybody's name, I knew their, their kids' names, I knew their spouses' names, I, you know, I knew, you know, if they were having some challenges, you know, in any realm and, and I was very um, connected with them. Um, the, the, the owner of that company, um, when I left that company, you know, was, did, did not have that same affinity for his people and, and, and the fabric of the company changed very quickly because he, he didn't demonstrate that. Um, and one of the, many of the team members came to me over time and said, man, you know, it's just so different. And one of them used an example and, and she said, you know, he, if he's shown people through, he'll come up and say hi and hey, Stacy, you know, and hey, this and hey, that. But, but any other time, he doesn't even give her the day, time of day. And mm -hmm. people see that, you know, they feel that. Like, I mean, people aren't dumb, you know, like they, they get whether you really care about them or not. And if you only care about them when it's convenient to you, then that will come through. So my, my point here about, you know, caring is you, you can't fake it. You know, you really either care or you don't. And if you do care, you know, you can really connect with your people and inspire them, um, encourage them and, and help them be the best that they can be. And to be honest, you know, that's been central to my sort of theme throughout my career is, you know, how can I help my people be the best that they can be? Because, I'll give you a quick anecdote. Um, I, I run a or have run a program called Eagle Academy and I'm restarting it actually. And Eagle Academy, it's really about, you know, soaring like an eagle. <laughs> um, it's a little corny, but, but the goal of it is, is to help people be the best that they can be. So when I left the a company that we ran Eagle Academy every year and it ended with Eagle Camp, you know, which was a great team building exercise. And so eight weeks at the end of that, you know, we had a great, you know, visceral experience. They decided they were going to change Eagle Academy. And instead of learning about how to, you know, um, be a better parent or how to, you know, build your community or how to, you know, manage your finances better, all the elements that I was focusing on was how can you be better in your own personal life? Because that'll, that'll transfer into the, 
company. It will transfer into business. But I invested in the individual, in the person, helping them be the best that they can be. Well, they changed the framework too. Uh, let's teach them how to be good at Excel. Let's teach them how to be better <laughs> at email. Let's teach them how to do the things that work better. And when they did that, the whole thing just fell apart. It mm. fell into a heap. It never, you know, never saw the light of day after that. And it was because people were engaged in the process of, you know, trying to be, you know, to improve themselves and they loved it. And they loved that focus on, you know, how to, to build a better life. And my argument was always, if they're doing better at home, if they're doing better financially, you know, they're taking better care of their, you know, savings and all that sort of stuff. It takes a lot of stress off them. They're not looking for the other job. You know, they're not sort of trying to jump ship because the grass is greener, you know, and that really worked. And um, it's a central theme. You know, I didn't talk about Eagle Academy in the book, but, you know, I am resurrecting it because um, I really feel like in this time, you know, people really need some help. How do, how do I cope at home and manage working from home and manage, you know, being a part of a team or the leader of a team, you know, when we're so isolated? Mm-hmm. And when, when we're struggling ourselves, I'm glad to hear Absolutely. that. And I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I want the listeners to know is this book itself is a great resource. I think anybody who is in business of any sort at this point should have this as one of the resources on their shelf. And, and there's so much more to it than what we've gone through already. So the book itself is phenomenal, but I'm thinking that some of the listeners may be listening, thinking, what else does Grant do? You know, what, what other resources do you offer? What other programs do you offer? What, what do you, other things you do that might help my business. So why don't you share, um, obviously Eagle Academy may be one of those things, but what, go ahead and share a couple of the other things that you're doing as you continue to bring the affinity principle to the world. That's a great question, Kelly. You know, so I, um, I do, I, I do a lot of blogging and I do be logging like, you know, video blogs as well. Um, and I give that away. Um, I've got a couple of short courses, which I've um, developed. And again, um, I've typically given those away. What I'm going to, or what I'm in the throes of doing is finalizing a couple of other short courses, which will be paid courses and, uh, and some longer courses, one of which will be the Eagle Academy course. And I've got most of that structured and we're, we're pretty, um, you know, pretty close to being able to launch that. So, a lot of um, programs, Kelly, you know, uh, it's all all on my website and, and some of it, as I said, is um, is in progress. Um, you know, I know, and I don't want to preempt you, your question, your final question, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but it keeps, keeps rising up for me. You know, it takes, just takes one, you know, and I'm going to answer that right now. And I'm sorry, because I, I was like, uh, <laughs> what, what actually happened here was, when the pandemic hit, um, I, you know, had a busy consulting business. I was working with a lot of different companies and, and, and pretty much with only a couple of exceptions, all that, you know, just went away and I had the time. So it just takes one pandemic, right. To be able to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I actually, for the first time ever had the time, you know, to, to sit down and write, write for 12, 14, 16 hours a day. Um, and that's where the book came from. So, um, in, in doing that, you know, like in creating the book, um, like I, I was filling a gap and I was also fulfilling a a purpose that I'd set out to do for forever. You know, I'd always wanted to, you know, distill all these principles down. And so, you know, sort of jumping forward to where I'm at today, I, I've got companies coming back to me. I've got new, new companies approaching me um, primarily for consulting and executive coaching services. Um, and I'm judicious who I work with, you know, in that I work with companies that I, I can't work for a company that's, you know, um, building dirty bombs or, you know, like mm. anything like that. I just choose not to. Um, but predominantly, you know, finish with this uh, predominantly I'm I'm in the process of now building courses so I can scale a lot of these learnings for not just leaders but for individuals for people both you know in the corporate wellness realm but also in in the you know personal development realm and um, and that's exciting you know to be able to to get that message you know into more hands 
Excellent. I love that. It takes just one worldwide crisis to, you know, launch you into (laughs) a whole new realm and and create new success for yourself, right? (laughs) Let's hope it's done that for many other people as well. Um, Sure has. And and let's just give them, Grant, your website, since uh, a lot of that information is available there. How how would they get in touch with you and find more information on any of those courses or projects? Sure. So I've got contact forms and, you know, I've got resources and there's even, you know, a leadership appraisal and there's a whole bunch of, you know, and again, free resources on my website. My website is Grant and then it's my middle name, which is Ian. And that's hard because... It's I for Indigo, A for Alpha, N for November. <laughs> a lot of people you know, get confused with my accent. And then my last name, Gamble. So grantiangamble.com um, is my website. And, and there's a you know, blog which I routinely update or put new stuff on. I've got about a dozen COVID pieces in there, which you know, people are welcome to that helps, <clears throat> you know, helps guide them in running virtual meetings or you know, focusing their you know, team or energy so all that's available to people um, free of charge. And if people want to reach out to me, you know, independently, they can reach me at grant at Um And, you know, welcome any, you know, anybody that needs, needs some help. Fantastic. I will make sure that that gets into the show notes as well. So if you're listening and you didn't catch that, I'll make sure that it is in the show notes. Grant, I want to finish by just reading one paragraph of the book. It is actually in your conclusion. And I think it really sums up a lot of what we spoke about today. It certainly sums up the affinity principle. And it says this, when who you are and what you represent are aligned with your core values and intrinsic purpose, your team will follow you with the certainty that cements this foundation of trust and affinity follows. Thank you. Well said. I am very excited uh, to have people go out and get this book again. It is available on Amazon and it should be a resource on your bookshelf if you are in any sector of business, uh, especially right now as we're going through sort of this worldwide shakeup. I think there are elements in this book that will help you get on track and continue success for your business. Grant, thank you so much for sharing it with us and for being with me today. And thanks to you and Greg too and the team at Scripta. Takes a team. It is, always. <laughs> always, exactly. Grant, best of luck to you. We'll stay in touch. And uh, again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Kelly. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Grant Gamble's journey and what brought him to connect with me and the episode today. But I also hope that you took away some good points that he brought out about growing a successful business. I want to reiterate his affinity principle formula because I think it is really important to remember this. Mindful leadership creates an incredible team performance, which leads to an awesome customer experience, and that yields great financial results. In other words, start by leading your people and focus on your people. Although that may seem like common sense, it's much more complex than that. And the book goes into many different details on how to do that and some practical application of these ideas. Also in our interview, he talked about the unique challenge of COVID-19 and how caring for your people is not quite as simple as giving a high five right now or sitting with them face to face, that you need to be a little bit more creative, but maybe even more focused now on showing that you care for your people. I think that's a great takeaway from the interview today. There was a lot more in there and there's certainly a lot more happening with Grant Gamble. If you're interested in hearing more about the projects he's working on or getting in touch with him, follow up with him at his website, grantiangamble.com. 
or follow him on social media as well. Thank you for joining me for this episode today and stay tuned for more episodes of It Just Takes One coming soon.